0: What's up and welcome back to Now Style Japod. We're giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name, as always, is Pat Sheehan, and I'm here with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. What's going on, man?
1: You used to carry all the groceries in one trip, my man. How you doing?
0: <laughs> you got too much dip on your chip, bro. <laughs> Dave, I choose you, like Ash. <laughs> what? What a great song! Just like oh. banger. Chance the Rapper, well, give us that album, man. July, so he says. Let's hope. He's a man of his word. I have no doubt about that. We're going to be talking a lot of music today, actually. we got five albums we're going to be going over, two TV shows, and one movie that dethroned Avengers Endgame from the top of the box office, John Wick 3. So before we get too far into it, though, if you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you are on iTunes, give us a five-star reading and review. And if you want to find other ways to listen to us, go to SoundCloud.com slash nostalgiapod And find all the ways you can check out the podcast and share us with friends. And you can do that by going to our Twitter page, at NostalgiaPod, and hitting us up there. Questions, concerns, comments, we appreciate it all. Let's start off, though, with The National. I am easy to find. (laughs) Dave, The National is an interesting band. So it's one of those bands from the the aughts, uh, one of those rock bands from the aughts that Mm -hmm. are still going. You know, The Killers strokes took a break kind of back together kind of not they at least tour every once in a while or at least do festivals. dirty
1: projectors
0: <laughs> dirty projectors i guess are in there but more like lcd sound system i guess are one of the ones mm. that are holding on you know we talked about other bands on here that i don't think we necessarily need to mention because the <laughs> they aren't necessarily great but the national i think their stock continues to actually at least remain consistent it hasn't really taken that dip mm. And it has actually probably gone up throughout the 2010s. This album, I'm easy to find, is their eighth album. And it's also a bit of a departure from what they normally do. They included a lot of guest vocalists, and particularly female guest vocalists, throughout this album, which they hadn't done much of in the past. Their last album, Sleep Well Beast, came out in 2017. Got a lot of, uh, I would say, acclaim for uh, using more electronic sounds in it, which is not uh, a typical national. Uh, way of making music, but I think the word that describes them is consistent, which I think can also kind of be synonymous with boring sometimes with rock music. Uh, I'm wondering for you, a pretty critical rock ear, only liking very specific rock like uh, Greta Van Fleet, those uh, excellent rockers from Michigan.
1: Hard rock. Did you find this national album boring? I didn't like it nearly as much as their first record, their debut album, which, I mean, eight album gap, it's reasonable to expect they'll sound different so not really holding it against them, not negative but yeah i think that the first track you had your soul with you they they mixed it so it would go in in and out each ear in the beginning for a good 10 seconds and it was actually mixed in such a cool way that i actually thought my bluetooth was like barely connecting and bugging out until i picked up that it was actually the way it was supposed to sound and that song kind of reminded me of some of the older stuff i had heard that was i don't want to say the rock the guitars were harder but it was the more, I think, the louder side of of their sound, and even though the, the vocals are always pretty mellow, pretty down the middle, the beats, the the, the, the rhythm of the of the music is still pretty upbeat and a little harder times, and that that's what I can connect to. But the back half of this album, after the first few tracks, started to lose me just because because the lead singer is kind of just gonna warble a little bit. It doesn't really grab me that much, but I'm also not like not like well-versed in in their music or their sound. I mean, you mentioned that they recently use electronic music in their last record. That's something that a lot of rock bands have uh, almost felt forced to do to stay relevant, to make their music uh, listenable in the modern age. But do you think they kept that going or they almost went back to what what they used to do? Because I mean, you you kept saying that they're consistent. So do you think they're reluctant to change anymore or they're just kind of sticking into what they're good at and that's that's okay like what's your overall take on eight albums in i actually think this is
0: one of the most
1: um the the biggest changes they've had in terms of
0: conceptualizing an album matt you mentioned the lead singer matt berninger he really is uh, for like most rock bands the heartbeat of the band he writes almost all the lyrics he has this very like leonard cohen nick cave type vibe to him where he has this kind of like deep sultry type voice that can really be moving and he can make almost like the most mundane topics in songs still seem pretty Hmm. interesting and and there's definitely some mundane topics within here i think there's actually a song i can't remember which one where he just talks about like a a couple who you know they they still really love each other but they just really aren't like as into each other as they used to be and they're like oh well we're too invested to like move forward move on from this so we're just gonna kind of stay in it's like oh it's a really boring topic for a song very like everyday life type thing but somehow he still makes it sound good i and what they did was uh he he brought his wife in and she helped him write some of the lyrics and they made this almost like a conversational album in a lot of ways and that's why bringing in guest vocalists like sharon von etten who whose album we talked about earlier in the year lisa thompson um kate stables or gail and dorsey uh gail and dorsey who is uh, david bowie's longtime bassist uh really adds like something to this album that not many other national albums have and i would actually say that that makes this probably one of their most inventive albums and you know it's all it's risk-taking but in a safe way for them because berninger is still the heartbeat of this and he's still the driving force and i think songs like light years which i tweeted about I i think is probably one of the most beautiful songs i've heard this year is when the nationals at their best when they're writing very simple but uh succinct and moving lyrics and and they're kind of relying on what they normally do but taking chances and letting other people have a voice on this record i think is a sign of them trying something and trying to shape themselves as a band moving forward
1: shout out aaron destiner for curating boston calling frankly that's yeah. the most recent time i felt like the national was truly in the news for me was their affiliation professionally and overratedly i guess with the festival i don't know it's interesting yeah i feel like they're just one of these well-established bands that just have a really big fan base and they're just they're just cool to just kind of beat go off to the beat of their own drum i mean i was just reading they recorded this at uh long pond studio which is like an hour north of where i'm from in the hudson valley not exactly the studio you think a mainstream international music act would go to record but they don't have to worry about that kind of thing they can just do whatever
0: Yeah, the National, I think, are, I think consistent is a good word for them. And I wouldn't say that necessarily they're boring, but I do think you can kind of find similarities, especially in their earlier albums, that you could say, yeah, well, maybe they weren't trying to go too far out, out, but recently they've been taking more risks. So I applaud them for that. We already added light years to our playlist, but you should follow that playlist. uh, Nostalgia, best of 2019 uh, on Spotify. Give us that follow and stay up to date on all the music we like including music from Carly Rae Jepsen and her newest album, Dedicated. Carly Rae Jepsen, man. I mean, I haven't been following her closely, but every time I hear the name, I just think of Call Me Maybe. Mm -hmm. And that that seems to be what's really defined her. Obviously, a smash hit when it came out and an incredibly infectious and catchy song.
1: Best-selling song of 2012. It was hard to overstate just how big that song was, but I think the... The whole takeaway after that was that the album Kiss that she put that on didn't do that well. It was like 46,000 first week. That was kind of the the whole talk of her career is why didn't Carly Rae Jepsen become a pop star, capital P, like really big? And then that only continued to, that question only continued to grow as uh, Emotion and Emotion Side B album and EP came out and were just like critically acclaimed pop records. Like, Mm -hmm. I think Emotion is like, arguably one of the most lauded pop pure pop albums of the 2010s yet no one really listened to it so there was this whole back and forth of is Carly Rae Jepsen actually good or is she just something the critics are pushing that doesn't actually have an audience so I don't know how much you were really following that like convo because again she wasn't super mainstream obviously it's just kind of like the undercurrents internet uh tumblr pop as she became like an icon for the lgbtq community and stuff like that but I think I kind of like got back on board. I heard Emotion Side B before I heard Emotion, and I was like, wait, this is actually like really awesome. I think like first time was good, and then she did the re-release with Cut to the Feeling, which was a really awesome pop song, really tough to have any issues with that. And then I was just, I don't know, from there, I was actually kind of anticipating the next thing because I feel like the internet had like bigged her up for everyone, and this album, Dedicated, uh, had a lot of hype riding on it. But, I mean, what did you think of it, given that you weren't really paying attention to this lead-up? this uh online uh fever pitch that was the church of carly ray what'd you think
0: i was aware that emotion was pretty critically acclaimed and liked. it's not also it's a record i haven't listened to many of the songs on and i I was also aware that there was some push that she was better than what her stardom at this point actually would let lead you to believe it's actually interesting to talk about it's her career seems to have gone kind of like inverse what you would expect like having this major pop hit at the beginning and then kind of not get as much recognition moving forward Um, but to continue making music and she writes a lot so going into dedicated i was kind of expecting uh, a incredibly quality album but probably nothing i was going to come away really loving and that's exactly kind of what i got was i i thought there were a lot of songs on here that were pretty good um and that i would listen to she really infuses like disco (laughs) into these songs in a way and and it, but almost in like a very relaxed way, which I find interesting. Uh, but I think it makes the songs really pleasurable to listen to. And I, I love that about it. But I also didn't leave here being like, ah, that album can't wait to go back to it. It's probably an album. I'll, I'll listen to maybe once or twice more a couple songs off it, but not what I'm going to love this year. What did you think of dedicated though?
1: Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I can like, and both times recognize that it's a respectable, well-written, emotional, Pop album, but also not want to revisit most of it. You know, I don't have really a problem with much of it. I think, as you said, I think the eight the eighties influence overall is really cool, just because that's not super common Mm -hmm. in pop star aspiring music. But I think actually the first track, I think it made me the second single, Julian. Mm -hmm. That's just like a full like post disco song, kind of like a Casey Musgrave's high horse idea. Like it, that song's awesome. I think that song's really good. But some of the other singles I think are fine. I definitely like emotion side B more than this, but I think this is kind of going to keep it going for her. And I mean, I was looking at like who she signed to and stuff. I mean, she's on some like universal imprints. I believe Scooter Braun is involved in her career. So I think they're really going to make a big push for her to get bigger office. But even if she does not I don't think it's like a concern anymore just because that fan base is real and is loyal. It was not made up by the critics. So even if I'm not going to, like, run this start to back the way I feel like you can kind of effortlessly listen to a side beat, I still really respect it. And I think it's uh, interesting just because pop music today, traditional definition of pop music, is pretty sanitized, pretty samey. So much to the point that country music is ripping it off. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. So the fact that someone like Carly Rae can come in and kind of stick to her guns in terms of just not jeopardizing her songwriting and also taking influence from stuff that's not super in vogue, uh, I think is pretty uh, pretty respectable. So, You'd, good stuff. You didn't even
0: mention her best pop song on this album, which is Want You In My Room, uh, produced and co-written with, by our guy Jack Antonoff. And that would actually, <laughs> I think, be a really interesting pairing, because it sounds like, like the energy she brings in that song really stood out to me from, other ones, from a lot of the other tracks on this album. And I think infusing her songs with a little bit more energy and I don't know mood maybe might be really good I think Ansonov mm-hmm. does that really well and it seems like she's just like a, a pure songwriter like she could crank out a bunch of songs and let Ansonov put like a spin on a whole record of them I think would be really interesting especially maybe even bringing in like Lord or something like that as like a collaboration because obviously Ansonov and Lord. I think that could be something that could potentially propel jepson moving forward these i'm just i'm just spitballing ideas out here you know if a record label wants to sign me to be an ideas man i'm totally here for mm, it a and r yeah let's go absolutely so uh, we're i think we're probably gonna put one song on the playlist haven't done that yet but we'll be updating that soon let's jump into some hip-hop though dave start with injury reserve these are your guys right these are my guys <laughs> hell yeah man <laughs> you posted a, a picture on your instagram story with them
1: Yes, I met Injury Reserve. I think it might have been their first or second t- national tour. They were opening up for the underachievers here in Boston, and they were fucking awesome. I had already listened to their music. I listened to uh, Live from the Dennis Office from 2015 and Floss from December 2016, their second and third mixtapes. And they had a lot of fans in the crowd, which is kind of rare for rap openers, especially someone who's a group the trio that's obscure and not super mainstream like injury reserve so i mean then again they're at a ua show so i guess underground fans would be in attendance but he was still i was so impressed by that and i think richie uh really was good at commanding the room uh you know again a year and a half ago and what stood out to me um besides meeting them after the show was that uh some dude was like talking shit to them as like being the opener or something and telling them like to get off the stage, some like drunk kid. Richie like jumped off the stage and fucking punched the dude in the face. Oh got sh- back up <laughs> and kept performing. It was the fucking hardest shit I ever saw. Wow. And nothing happened because he was chilling at the merch booth at the end of the show. And it was fucking awesome. And I like I was asking him about it. He's like, Was that cool? Are you, you good? He's like, yeah, I'm fine, man. He was just talking shit. I had to end that. <laughs> wow. And like meanwhile. They've gotten. They have a substantial underground following at this point. They're without a question the biggest rappers to come out of Arizona, just because there's really no one else. And I think <laughs> that's really cool. You know, we always talk about all the scenes, all the hubs yeah. in the country, and even England now as well, and, and Asian rap. We talk about all the, all the areas where stuff comes and how the sounds different, but no one really thinks of uh, uh, southwestern U.S. for a place of hip hop. Like we'll talk about Houston in a second with like Megan Stallion, but Arizona showing up right here with injury reserve and yeah i feel like this this album was kind of a long time coming for them and uh i think it's it, it continues a lot of what they've been doing um so i guess there can be good and bad with that but what did you think because i mean had you listened to really any of their stuff I mean, nah. their biggest songs to this point where it's all this money uh oh shit just some they had some really hard songs but eclectic beats which again continued on this record but had you heard any of that before
0: uh no i hadn't listened to them before i, I was aware that you had seen them and, and were into them my my take was it was a very up and down record for me there were points when i was like oh this shit's great and times when i was like i I can't even get to this song i need to skip to the next one you know uh, one of the things i think that also stood out was they really seemed to at least in in the first half rely a lot on like the the kind of drums that that was in black panther the movie which i i (laughs) like stood out very specifically to me that they were like I, i don't even know what kind of drums to describe them as but just really stood out that it was the same style and that actually kind of brought me around to i think how i heard this album was it was like their take on vince staples big fish theory but like almost mm. more extreme in ways like it, whereas vince i think was able to make it more cohesive and consistent this felt like the extremes of, of what he was trying to do experimentally on that and i give them a lot of credit for that because official record they could very easily put something out that was going to be safe and that they know would probably have a couple of hits and people would really flock to. But they seem to stay true to what they are, which is this band that goes hard on some songs and maybe loses energy on others. Which I think the songs where they go hard is probably when I was not as into it. I think that's more of just my taste. Um, But a song like uh, Gravy and Biscuits, which is probably the most like Mm. pop-sounding, radio-friendly song, is uh, is crossover my favorite on there um a song like get the fuck up not 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 my thing <laughs> i actually described i wrote down as listening, <laughs> this is a cacophony of sound just a lot of different sounds fused together at once for me were you, were you pleased with the album though were you was this what you expected
1: yeah well i'd never loved either of their other tastes before it's kind of the same thing as this they, the energy can come and go and because the beats are relatively all over the place just because they're so unique some songs just don't really work or don't lend themselves to uh, re-listenability, right? So, again, not a bad thing. I think, they're again, they're just still trying lots of stuff, and frankly, that's really refreshing. Uh, Parker Corey, the white kid in the trio, he, I believe, co-produced every single beat here. He's That's that's, that's his role. And they do a lot of cool stuff w- w- with the production. But, again, it doesn't mean every song's amazing. I, Brock Hampton kind of does the same thing. One of the early singles, Jawbreaker. Which has a video I think really stands out, just because that's kind of like a cool satire on like the fashion industry and done in a smart way while still sounding good. Uh, Rico Nasty featured on that. I think Jailbreak the Tesla with Aminé. They had a Lucy that wasn't on any project with Aminé last year. Uh, I think Tesla. It's cool. It's a, it's in their banger, but it doesn't mm-hmm. stand out next to their other ones. But I actually really like <laughs> Rap Song Tutorial. Right. Because again, it's kind of just like a satire, like poking fun at the modern way traditional rappers make make their projects and attempt to find success so i think these again these are guys that uh i i'm not going to expect gravy and biscuits to become some big hit even though it is obviously the closest song to pull that off but they'll continue to be i think rising forces in the underground hip-hop scene and that's pretty exciting
0: i thought they infused humor in in here and satire as well which i thought was pretty cool um, and I'm definitely excited to see what what they do next. Um, I think they do need to find some cohesion in their albums in order to take it to like the next level. But there's a lot of promise here, so definitely a band to keep your eye on moving forward. Someone that I don't even think you can say keep your eye on anymore just has arrived is Megan The Stallion. This is what her third album,
1: third project. I believe the f- first one and Tina Snow are mixtapes technically. Gotcha. The Fever, Fever, the new ones. It's, it's her first one with any uh label support uh this is on 300 entertainment but yeah i think i think it's still a mixtape technically but either way first like big official project full push release from megan the stallion yes so
0: the, the third project fever I, I wasn't very familiar with her i think i i went back and listened to a couple of songs just kind of get a sense of who she was and this album or this project i guess i'll call it moving forward
1: it is a debut album. I just checked. Yes. Uh, so th-
0: this this debut album really surprised me in terms of how quality it was, start to finish. And she seems to have really just kind of put herself on the map with this. What I think I liked most about it, and uh, I want to hear from you what what you liked or didn't like, was that she. This was pretty simple record. Like the the beats were like we're going from injury reserve to Megan Thee Stallion. Who the difference in beats and, and the way that they style their music is totally different stark yeah it's very stark (laughs) difference but she that works to her favor because it just allows her to shine and the way that she flows over any beat and she just has such a clear voice throughout i thought was probably the most impressive thing and i found a lot of these songs pretty funny too just the way that she like Mm. talks about things or some of the the um some of the hooks on these or the verses on these i thought were just hilarious so uh, Megan the Stallion were you as high in this album as I was
1: oh yeah definitely this uh, blew me away and I was already a pretty big fan of Tina Snow I, th- I mean Big Old Freak was like her viral hit uh, Dance Challenge and uh, got, I think Solange twerked to it and Rihanna followed her on IG afterwards from it like that was really what got like the ball rolling for her in earnest but that and Too Cocky off that and even songs from her first tape like I downloaded those too like she. Just had a lot of like really competent uh, raps right away, which it, which always can put you in the map. And you know, reductively, because she's a woman, she gets viewed differently, unfortunately. But and like uh, to the point where they like a fake Cardi B beef was created. That's how you know Megan The Stallion was a big deal when that happened, right? <laughs> but you know, I think it, again, to, not to compare her to women, but she reminds me a lot of city girls, in the sense that very cocky very feminist but not afraid of open sexuality and things like that trap beats confident rapid fire flows very similar sound but I actually like Megan Thee Stallion more just cuz I think this fever record in particular as you said just really is hits hard basically the whole time and it didn't really grow stale for me it's only 30 minutes long a lot of tracks on there but I think she kind of really just honed in on what she can what what she does best i mean very right from the first song reeler mm-hmm. I mean, my God, it's just fucking melt your speakers <laughs> type shit. And I mean, we were texting about it. I mean, Pimpin, uh, Cash, shit, Simons. There's so many hits on this, and it's just really exciting because I mean, you once you look into her career more and you realize she's just wrapped up her college degree. She's been in college this whole time, and like her mom is her manager, and her mom used to like you know rap back in the day, and it sounds like she has a really good head on her soldiers and also has a lot of industry support. So it's just really exciting because I think she's no doubt going to be a big star.
0: Is she still um, able to be picked for the XXL or double XXL list?
1: Uh, definitely. Yeah. We, we, I think I briefly mentioned her when we did our video like a month ago. And again, this fever record hadn't come out when they made the, that decision for this year. But given that big old freak went pretty viral, and she really started, and she was doing a lot of freestyles at that time, too, always keeping her name out there. I would not be shocked at all if she got picked, and frankly, it would be coming at a great time for her, and for XXL, for that matter, given her rapidly rising fame. So yeah, I mean, I would root for that, just because she clearly you know, ha- has it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, there's a feature on here on Cash It by DaBaby, Um someone else who could be an XXL oh, yeah. freshman. I thought he was fantastic. Mm-hmm and that that song you mentioned pippin uh weak ass bitch wab um all those songs really stood out as well as you said Reeler. just there's hit after hit on here and um you know we talk all the time about like artists be watching artists that are on the rise she's positioned herself to be a mega star i think um if she can get some some good guest features between now whenever her next album comes out and that's a hit i think we'll see her rise pretty quickly um really exciting to, to have someone like this coming in, into the rap scene and just female rappers mm-hmm. right now in general are having a moment, um, a real rise right now in that yes. area. We'll, we'll probably do an end of the year breakout about that because I think there's, especially if T.R. Wax album is as good as we're hoping it will be, that's supposedly coming out soon. I think sure. we'll have a lot to talk about there. Eagle. Okay. Odd Futures, Tyler the Creator. Man, so it's interesting. We talked about Carly Ray Jepsen and I said, you know, I think about calling maybe. I think about Tyler the Creator when he first came up, uh, probably a little bit before Carly Rae Jepsen, right? Like a year or two out of future, maybe even a little bit more. Than uh,
1: that. no, even if, I well, mean, late Tyler really popped off in like '09. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the whole decade really was the in the first half of it, the out of future wave really was at full throttle. I'd say by like 2011. So yeah, right a little before Carly, but yeah, similar.
0: I was definitely when when it first came out. I mean. It was It was a huge movement, like you said, and then I kind of lost interest in following him. I, I think I found his, his music a little bit inaccessible only because it sounded very just like dark, angry, it was you know uh, salacious, I think in a lot of senses, uh, a bit sure. off putting yeah, shock a bit off putting it at points. Um, and then Flower Boy came out two years ago. Grammy nominated uh, and there it was a, this was a different Tyler, the creator than we had we had heard before. Um, a little bit more upbeat, kind of seeing life through a different lens, or at least talking about life through a different lens. Um, you know, Flower Boy's a lot more jazz-infused. He's finding a new sound. And then Igor comes out, and this is a, an album that's written, produced, arranged. Anything that the album had to have done, he did. So this is totally his work. Yep. <laughs> I was a little bit concerned. I, I was like, is this going to actually be, you know, what, what, what he thinks it's going to be, or is this going to be maybe a flop? igor what mm. was it a hit for you or was it a flop
1: oh it was definitely a hit i i didn't have that same concern but that that's kind of interesting to think about because you can think of two records ago in 2015 cherry bomb which was a, a big swing his first real swing at attempting to escape just being a pure rapper and it was largely inaccessible most of the songs weren't very good smuckers exa- uh, exception but having if Cherry had happened again with Igor, man, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that would have been interesting if he just kind of got lost in his own uh, his own devices again. But no, I think Igor is is fantastic. and frankly, I think it's there's so much going on with this album that it requires multiple listens, and I still haven't given it all the time it needs. But upon the first listen and uh, ran back a lot of our tracks since then, uh, I like a lot I like a lot of it I think it's it's really impressive and as you said he's come a incredibly long way from uh kill people kill people burn shit fuck school you know it's <laughs> it's been quite the ride and I was actually looking back and he's released an album every other year the past 10 years like this is his 6th album 09 he's, he's working 11, 13, 15, 17, 19 Tyler's that guy He he's he's real and this is uh, it's funny I think he's 28 now and to make this kind of progression from eighteen to 28th again, it's it's, it's no one was no one saw it coming. It's yeah, awesome. it
0: it is awesome, especially because when he first came up, I think people weren't even sure really what to make about future. Like, was this a real thing? Is this just like a like a a niche movement that's catching some craze? And he's really established himself now as uh, I don't mean, I can't I guess you can't say like an elder statesman, but like you said, he's been making albums every other year. Like this is his sixth album. That's crazy. To go back to to Igor specifically, though, I think what I found most intriguing about this was it's incredibly unconventional. You know, we talk, we've been talking a lot more recently about genreless albums. This is definitely a hip hop album, but it infuses so many other sounds throughout. It, it it's chopped in such a specific way. There's a lot of uh, distortion in terms of the vocals on here, whether it's pitched up or pitched down. Um, it, it songs end abruptly. But it still feels very cohesive. And I think that's what's really impressive. It feels like you're really going through um, a, a ride of, of different emotions and thoughts. Of, you know, It seems to be based around losing a relationship of, of this person that Tyler was in love with. And then this guy left him for a woman. And Tyler kind of grappling with that throughout the album in a lot of ways. But he really, I think, produced this in a way that is very interesting and unique. Uh, but that feels still like a whole. This album, I think, feels like a whole, even though you can take individual songs off here and and enjoy them. And I think that's really impressive for someone who, like you said, had not such a great run their first time around producing.
1: Yeah, and um, I mean, he's long waxed poetic about his love of Pharrell and really been a fan of the whole the whole the whole rap machine, to be honest. Which was always funny because he was such a iconoclast or presented himself that way when Odd Future was at its peak. And, yeah, you know, we reviewed Earl, some rap songs last year. Earl certainly has long rejected his, his come up in terms of the music he makes now. Same for Sid and the Internet. Um, but Tyler, I guess the Elder Statesman thing has been thrown around. It's kind of true just because, I mean, he's like friends with, like, close friends and, like, just part of the rap game, even if he doesn't make, like, the same kind of music as ASAP Rocky and Q and Wiz and all those people. But he's just, like, one of those dudes. He's kind of at the top. I mean, remember, Kendrick name-dropped him in Control. That was six years ago. And he's only gotten better since then. And, again, I think this, this one in particular, I actually it's early but I think I like a lot of these songs more or want to revisit these songs more than Flower Boy like Flower Boy was really impressive just I mean obviously like he was talking about his sexuality really for the first time in earnest on that but songs like Garden Shed and Boredom and really good songs but songs I didn't run back that often just because of the mellowness of them but I mean Who That Boy and I Ain't Got Time See You Again like big hits from him off that album but in this one I think songs like earthquake or earthquake <laughs> excuse me with playboy cardi shout out cardi being on this by the way run out of time a boy's a gun the,
0: that think, beat switch up on running out man, of time is like crazy how good that is
1: man the, these are songs too they're so cool to just listen to on their own and then as you listen to them uh in sequence and you hear how the beats change within the song and then in transition it's just Again, there's a lot here. I still have to parse a lot of it out, but I think it's really yeah. Great. And to kind of go back to that that genreless sense, like
0: one of the songs that stood out most to me was the closer "Are We Still Friends," and that song is just like straight soul, like soulful as fuck. But then probably the song that stood out to me next is "What's Good," which is just uh, it's a banger. It's a song you want to move around to, dance to. Um, he, whatever he tried to do with each song on this album, he does well. And I think that's the most impressive thing. Is This really feels like this unlocks something for Tyler in terms of what his career and what his potential as an artist is. And that's just really exciting. Um, If you haven't checked out Eeyore yet, or maybe if you haven't really been in on Tyler, which if you weren't in after Flower Boy, what are you doing? But get on and listen to this Mm -hmm. because I think this is an album that you can't miss for
1: 2019 for sure. One last question. How did you feel... I've, uh, before and certainly after him uh, Mike Posner and us and telling us to turn your fucking phone off listen straight through don't be distracted or else sentiment which I also uh, broke right away because <laughs> yeah. I was texting you yeah. about the album
0: how did I feel about it? I, I find that a, little, a bit pretentious when when artists do that and it's no different for Tyler um I do think though you know almost with anything or if you like a movie a lot like uh, this is the same issue we had with Roma last year. If you're going to go into something like that, mm, something yes. that there's potential, you're going to be not paying attention that you're going to be distracted in some sense. And it's something you really care about. You should take the time to listen to it with the least amount of distractions as you can. I, I think texting your friends and talking about the album can only enhance it though. Um, so I, I don't know if I necessarily count that, but right. I do think when artists kind of put it up there, it's like dog, like uh, this, this ain't it like it's, yes. it's audio. It's a little exactly. different, sorry. which actually something <laughs> I would recommend watching, giving your full attention to, is the Nationals movie or short film that they did, which we forgot to mention, starring Alicia Vikander, our queen, um, which I think is actually accompanies the album very well and is very moving. So uh, definitely should I recommend checking that out, and definitely check Igor out um, for sure. Why don't we move on though to some, move on to something that nobody missed: Game of Thrones, the finale, the series finale
1: highest rated hbo episode ever i think it was 19 million initially when in the first like you know the, the first initial viewing and the immediate streaming and then i mean the past episodes this season were ballooning up to i think in the 40 millions within the week so i mean monoculture as we've said at nauseum but it it, it is it's is true what's also funny because a few days ago big bang theory signed off and that also did like 18 milli on cbs uh i i did not watch that one i totally missed that and we're not gonna be talking about no. that today that's in twice as many homes by the way broadcast channel no, definitely not, not the, same. the same so
0: game of thrones is over uh, why don't we talk about the episode first and we'll give our thoughts about the show as a whole we, we've talked at nauseam about the the issues with this season and mostly it's it's the pacing i think the last two seasons if they had been stretched out a bit more to three maybe even doubled and they were able to be four seasons that would have definitely helped the show and the storytelling of the show, and it would have made things felt a lot more earned, it would have made decisions that the characters made feel more true to who they were and the circumstances that are driving these decisions, but overall our take has been that the show is still good, and it's still pretty satisfying. We're getting a lot of the things we want, even if it's not necessarily always in the way we want, and I think this episode kind of fits that. I I left and I said that was a fine finale to everything. I felt like what they've done well all season they did well here. The interpersonal emotional moments were great. Um, the John Tyrion conversation was great. John killing Danny was great. Mm-hmm. The Starks goodbye and them all going in their different directions I thought was really good. Even the, the throne room conversation between Tyrion and Braun and Davos and Brienne at the end was oh, that was I fantastic. That <laughs> all that stuff was really, Tyrion seeing Jamie and Cersei. All that stuff was great where I think the show fumbles a bit is uh, probably the, the the meet and greet in the, the dragon pit. <laughs> I, th- I think there was some there was some stumbling there. Um, I think I think I think there's some questions in terms of like do all the decisions that that they made for the show make sense in terms of like what's next. But I think overall it was a it was a fine finale and I'm satisfied with the way that they wrapped it up. How did you feel about the end of Game of Thrones, the last episode?
1: Yeah, I I did find the finale quite satisfying, and as you were saying, I haven't really had an issue with basically any story beat that has happened. Uh, Just the rush pacing can make the effectiveness wane. And that's not to say that uh, everything was ineffective from a plot perspective because of this. That's certainly not true, but some things you think just would have landed better with the more time, as you were saying. But you know, this I and I see some of the discourse around the finale leaving open questions, and I was like, I thought we accepted like weeks ago that they're not going to answer every question, and that's just not what's what's we're interested in. Like, like we're not going to find out if Alaria Sand and Septonunella are still in the fucking dungeons yeah. that Cersei had them in. Like that that that's not coming back up. And nor is that a, a, a substantial gripe to have, in my opinion. Like, it, I just don't know why people are focusing on these weird things, you know? And, like, yes, at the Dragon Pit. Was that guy Halland Reed, one of the unknown lords there? I think he was. Would have been cool to hear from and Reed a long time ago. At this point, right. it doesn't matter. Um, and, frankly, I really liked the Dragon Pit scene just because I was just like, was like, who are these people? Is that a Manderley <laughs> on the right? The new Prince of they mentioned? Oscar yeah. Isaac-looking motherfucker? <laughs> uh fuck quentin by the way if you read the books he sucks i, I really like that just because it, it, great uh opportunity to dunk on <laughs> emir yeah. one last time tobias menzies coming back that was Uncle, fantastic also yes. robin aaron with the Yo. big glow up like fucking neville longbottom out of harry potter man just solids are treating him well son i uh clicked on his twitter and i did something else and i refreshed and it like Jumped up the followers like you go into his Instagram comments right now. That I think he's an Italian actor. P- people are shook. Let's put it <laughs> that way, and it's just really funny. There's a lot of Robin pieces this morning, um, so that was cool. But I think the small council scene, as you mentioned, man, I just had a smile on my face that whole time. That was just so cool to see Tyrion, Braun, Davos, uh, Sam, Bran a little bit, Pod in the King's Guard with Brienne. Like, man, I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And I sat, you know. I, I found the whole finale really satisfying, and John having a tragic end, despite quote winning, is kind of what we predicted all along. Mm-hmm. We thought he would die as a result, but same difference, tbh. <laughs> um, <laughs> True. And like the whole not having a happy ending. Yeah, John did not have a happy ending. I, I actually but it's feel kind he of did going though. full circle for him. And maybe he wanted to go up to the north. So I guess it's not like it's not a total total loss for him. He's with ghosts and torment after all, and he always felt more at home and at peace up there. But you know the sacrifices he made largely are unrecognized. And like I see, also people bringing up: Does this mean that his lineage as Aegon Targaryen, as the rightful heir, didn't matter? It's like no, it it still mattered. It, It certainly drove the whole half of this season. Just because it didn't, they didn't make him king. I think doesn't mean it was all for naught. You know what I mean?
0: I think that, that that's a substantial, gr- or I think that has some legitimacy though. Especially just because the show built that up over what six seasons. There's going to be this this big twist, like John's parentage. is this huge thing. Mm-hmm. That one of the best episodes is. Uh, the Winds of the, it's not the Winds of Winter, is it?
1: The Winds of Winter, season yes. six finale. Winds
0: yeah. of Winter. Where, you know, they have the scene where you find out, uh, Liana Stark tells Ned and then it's yep. Tower Joy. to John's face. And mm-hmm. I think the fact that the payoff on that is just that basically made him feel uncomfortable being with Danny, um, who I think was probably gonna snap regardless, and that he that's not even brought up in that dragon pit scene just feels like okay right this this didn't hit the way that you would have expected with a reveal and a build-up to that kind of secret being revealed like that i felt like that was a bit
1: yeah well again i think that really just is ascribed to the pacing with more time to explore this development you we would have gotten more from it beyond its basic driving of the plot and driving of decisions specifically Mm -hmm. danny's and yeah that sucks like we would i mean i would have wanted i wanted more time with basically everything right most people did sure um and yeah i guess that that is something that that, that suffered but i reject the, the notion that it like didn't matter at all because it certainly did what did you think about bran um becoming king i mean bran the broken not the best <laughs> title let's put it that way yeah i mean i was trying to think of like <laughs> like if you want to do alliteration like bran the flyer bran the. is have there a you, b word for that
0: <laughs> have you ever had or have you ever seen someone get such a high honor, and then get dunked on as much as Bran did in that, like, two-minute sequence, Tyrion was like, who has a better story than Bran, the broken? And then Sansa's like, yo, his dick doesn't even work. Like, he's not gonna be so able funny. to have airs. I was like, yo, <laughs> good thing this guy doesn't have emotions. And I, and honestly, I thought Bran was gonna be like, nah, this this isn't me, son. He's like, this is exactly <laughs> why I'm here. I was like, what? <laughs> so you're telling me this was Bran's plan all along? Like, Well, I, I, I think...
1: Know. My read on that was just that for him foreseeing what needs to happen, he foresaw that that's what he him as a very neutral, objective figure now as the three eyed raven needed to rule as a result. That that was my read on that. I mean, yes, I know like you could point to uh, uh I'm not brand anymore, I'm not really a man, whatever all those quotes he had about just being the three ride raven. I get that. But I I mean, I don't know. The three eyed Raven was kind of a realm protecting powerful figure throughout the time throughout time and doing that from the throne i don't know nbd in my opinion so is that perspective
0: right and i think one of the questions i'm left with is how sustainable is that or is that the plan like bran picks someone to be the thread raven and he then that person's the king is that going to be the heir you know like there's there's quite there's unanswered questions which we're never going to get the answers to right. but
1: well and that was funny at the dragon pit they're like what if we have the common folk help with the voting and <laughs> all the these coastal elites are all like fuck that yeah so it's like more oligarchical than truly de- democratic but still ultimately right. is it was this danny's original vision the the wheel has been broken yes the throne was literally melted but more importantly like royal bloodlines are gone mm-hmm. and there's been so much turnover with the houses of note that it, it does feel like a true regime change to me and of course the north is now free and like free in quotes not they were oppressed before but
0: but the um, iron islands aren't even though they were told they'd be free so yar and yar's just like yeah you know what you're right cool let let the north be free i'm cool being ruled by this weird kid <sighs> like the, 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 these are just the things i had issues with like also Grey Worm just seems to do a one eighty in that whole meeting, like came in like, nah, I'm not hearing any of this and then was just like, Oh, okay, like I'm fine with this prisoner all of a sudden talking and running the meeting. Like just a lot of like inconsistencies with right. I
1: bag. saw some people saying, like, why would these lords listen to Tyrion?
0: But he's the smartest person in the realm.
1: Yeah, and like like he's responsible for the city beat I was like, No, he's not. He said like it's just Danny's fault that she burned the city. Like Tyrion right. doesn't get blamed for this, and Tyrion tried to be good. Like I, I, don't, I really didn't understand that criticism. Like, why would they listen to what Tyrion has to say? It's like, yes, has Tyrion's logical compass gone up and down as the plot needed it to? Yes, no kidding. <laughs> but having it come back, came back to what he did best. And Dinklage, of course, had a great episode as a result. Great episode for Dinklage. Didn't well, well, that, that tracked for me? I really didn't understand why that didn't work for people.
0: I thought Amelia Clark was great in this episode too. Yes, and, and Kit Harrington as well. But I thought especially Amelia Clark this season had a lot to do and nailed it. Kit Harrington pretty much just said for most of the the season, "You are my queen," like that in his brooding sense but right
1: what did you think so for john i saw this going around john ultimately was convinced to kill danny and never gave up his claim it was taken from him do you thought that hurt john's agency overall i didn't really mind it like it made all of it made sense within the story for me granted john was one of the main protagonists so i guess it would have been nice to ha- give him more of like a just more time to pontificate i guess of course more time he would have gotten into John's head more, of course, that would have been great. But I, don't know, I didn't really mind how it, how it went down for him. I mean, well, he got I, his I, old locks back, yeah, while he was in jail. And I really I, liked how he, the Danny scene when he killed her. So I, I never issue with that either.
0: I do feel, you know, if you listen to binge mode, one of the themes they talk about a lot is the the person that doesn't want to rule oftentimes is the best ruler, and
1: um, like Bran,
0: yeah, the, the, the reluctant ruler, sure. Although Bran, Bran didn't seem all all that reluctant he was like yes son give me that crown i'm with it um john though I, i think and this was one of the themes that came out of the story overall for me is a lot of times people are they tell you that they are and i think john told people almost in every single season i'm just a soldier like i i take orders like i sure i'll like lead men if i have to but he's not really born to be the person who's on the throne making those sort of decisions you know, Sansa is built for that. Bran, I guess, now somehow is built for that. Tyrion is definitely built for that. But kind of like Grey Worm, I think John's just a soldier, man. And I think that that's how at least I reckon with him not having as much agency as maybe people would want him to have in these stories, that that's just kind of who he is. And I think nature, uh, you know, what it, like human nature in this is a major theme of the story. And someone like Arya in the first season tells you, oh, I'm not that not that type of a girl i'm not gonna mm-hmm. be that way not a lady and now she's goddamn henry hudson she's going out and exploring the new world man ferdinand magellan that shit so uh, it's it's cool to see like that payoff of like people being who they've always been and seeing that develop through time um i guess with the exception of Bran, who became something totally not him but that's a whole nother storyline <laughs> so i wanted to ask you though because i i you know, I think season eight has gotten a lot of critique. People are saying that, that this is an awful way to end the show. Did you feel like season eight was a good throne season? A bad throne season? A great throne season? Like, where would you put it up there with the other, like, I think season four or five is like regarded as probably five. the best one.
1: Five. Oh, best. Yeah, best would be three or four, depending three or on. four, yeah. And then six, depending on who you ask. I still thought it was a good season. But again, there's a lot of qualifiers because it's truncated and but there's so there are so many great moments obviously all the technical stuff we haven't really talked about yeah. uh, both this episode with like the shot of drogon's wings and drogon with the the snow and yes that's all cgi yeah no kidding but it still required shooting and mm-hmm. vision to make that was that shit was great and everything yeah. with the bells was technically mass a masterpiece whether you cared about danny's turn or not and of yeah. course the long night same thing even if you had trouble following along visually and then let's not forget this season we had a knight of the seven kingdoms the where brienne gets knighted the episode before the battle of winterfell which is like a top tier thrones episode the the peak of characters meeting in a place and shooting the shit and it's like some the best throne stuff we've ever gotten is exactly what that episode was and yeah i again like this this and season seven are just kind of of a piece because of the seemingly unforced error that was choosing to shoot less than before. But I still don't, I still was satisfied almost every single week for by almost everything. And again, never had a problem with the story. So yes, I still think it's a good, good throne season, but seasons three and four, which are the adaptations of storm of swords. I think the plot and the story is such a grand scale at that time. and, the seasons themselves are just so awesome. I mean, remember in that we get the death of Rob, the death of Joffrey, the death of Oberyn. Yep. There's so much awesome stuff that happens from a story perspective, and it's executed so well in the show that you know. I mean, the, the show peaked at that time, of course it did. But in terms of having to end, the the season had to end, end the ship, land the plane. Yeah. And it landed. It landed it. So it's still a good season.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's still. Game of Thrones, I think, bucked what it meant to be a television show in so many ways, and that that's a tribute to George R. R. Martin's story. I've seen a lot of people saying he's a big winner of Thrones season eight, all of the criticism it's nope. received. I actually would say Sorry. the opposite. You know, get that story done. If you, I think it, one of the things I feel most almost like cheated by is I loved seeing the way that this story was adapted on the screen and the fact that it wasn't able to be exactly what it was intended to be because he hasn't written these stories. It's just very frustrating and i want to see him get these stories done because i wa- i'm probably gonna have to read the books and catch up at this point because i, w- I want to know how things are supposed to end um,
1: well you have plenty of time
0: <laughs> yeah and maybe all the time in the world because we don't actually know if we'll get these done the,
1: the crux of george is a big winner because this season was polarizing doesn't really track with me because well oh wait the point is people are really excited for him to keep writing the books so we can read them like we already as if were that was somehow different six weeks ago no george is taking l after l because he doesn't finish the story that he started writing in 1991 it's only l's here and frankly they started shooting the spinoff a few weeks ago fyi and that probably comes out the end of next year uh or maybe early 2021 wait 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 till the book is the next book isn't out when we see a trailer for the spinoff i'm i'm sorry but this everything is on george in terms of his story being taken from him and mm-hmm. by the way he told them what happened so you we expect danny to break bad in the yes, books it's exactly. been foreshadowed in the books as well so it's not like Benny and Weist went off off tilt and made yep. shit up like they they got the broad strokes anyway
0: we're gonna get a Maisy williams aria exploring no. no you don't think so i think we'll get a spin way. off
1: no frankly i think she wouldn't be interested in it uh, as an actor but also i think they've well, basically said that all these spinoffs that are in various stages of development including prequels. the long might one are prequels i believe the long white one is codenamed blood moon
0: Ooh, i like that
1: i mean we're going back hundreds and up to thousands of years in the past and like i mean this this long night one yes it's a prequel but this is like pre-targaryens pre-andal invasion this is like first men shit children of the forest Leon the Clever, brand the Builder, Last Hero. This is like way back there. And frankly, it would probably feel very different. And that's really cool. And obviously, this world is never going away. This gap we get between now and that spinoff is frankly going to be the largest gap we ever get again for at least 15 years, probably. So embrace it.
0: It's interesting. And I think what makes me excited for that Long Night spinoff is the fantasy elements. And that's actually probably one of my biggest disappointments of this season is just how... Basically, after episode three, uh, they decided we're not really going to deal with the fantasy elements anymore. We never got Arya with a you know another faceless man type situation where she's you know using someone else's face. We didn't really learn much more about Bran and, and his magical abilities and what he can do. And I do feel like that's something that the books will be able to expand on in a way that the show wasn't able to. And I think just chose not not to try to anymore which I think is an understandable decision, but still a disappointing one for me. Just want to get that in there. Last question, or maybe two more. Is this the last monoculture TV show?
1: It has to be. It has to be. Just because, as we've said ad nauseum before, I'll say it again, so much stuff is competing for your time these days, and a lot of the shows that do come out are released all at once, a lot of Stranger Things and stuff on Amazon and most Hulu shows and just doesn't lend itself to a six-week bonanza that we just went through the way thrones did and i mean barry we'll talk about barry in a second barry got like two million original viewers last night which was more than double season one's finale great gains but like barry a show that everyone you talk to loves it every critic shouts to the moon about it is but a a, a piece of dust in the cultural landscape because there's just so much shit going on, and that would still be the case if it wasn't competing with Thrones or going on right after Throne. I mean, what's, what's supposed to fill this void and attempt to be this or even be Breaking Bad, something that was really big but not quite this big? Like the Lord of the Rings show, I feel like it has to be very, very good to get enough people interested just because... I think, largely speaking, the Hobbit movies brought people down out of the Middle Earth high. And even if I still like most of the Hobbit movies, but I mean, the Marvel, the Marvel Disney Plus shows, the Mandalorian—I just don't think these shows are going to get the ratings unless Disney Plus gets 50 million subs in like three months. You know, I just don't. I just don't think we have the infrastructure nor the the stuff in the immediate future that has even a chance to attempt to what grab a- this much of the pie. So it's not not it's not realistic. What about the Game of Thrones spinoffs? Do you think they have a chance to potentially grab the culture like this again? I think the spinoffs are going to do very well. And because HBO will push them and they have the Thrones affiliation and mm-hmm. they'll be heavily, heavily marketed, but it won't be as big as this show. I don't think yeah. that's likely at all. And I frankly, I would have said that even if this season was a 10 out of 10, everyone loved it. Mm-hmm. Spinoffs, prequels, continuing of IP, it very rarely continues the highs that it originally captured. Yeah. And you can, you can look at anything in movies and TV. It's usually the case. So I guess in a sense, that's sad just because it was so fun and so awesome to watch this show live. And as I said before, I watched, started watching this show live during season two. So I've been really following the week to week of it for a very long time. And there really wasn't anything like it, especially once Breaking Bad ended. So it is going to kind of suck. And that's this is why I always push for put out your shows week to week because the conversation will be larger. Yep. Even if it won't be this large, it'll still be much larger. It's just better.
0: All right, serious. Last question now for Thrones. Where's this rank in your all-time TV shows? Your personal list.
1: Top three.
0: I think it's probably top five.
1: Haven't thought about it. Breaking Bad, leftovers. This. Three. Yeah, I put some Breaking order.
0: Bad, leftovers, The Wire. Definitely above it. I'm trying to think of if there's a show I put fourth, but yeah, it's it's up there. And just to, it's a it's a spectacle in every sense. There's not going to be another show. I think that reaches this level of production this level of uh just being talked about you know popularity
1: mm-hmm. so wait, you're saying westworld season three doesn't have that potential
0: yo actually that that trailer when i saw uh aaron paul yeah aaron paul i was like huh i'm 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 intrigued i'm willing to give it a, a couple episodes to see and i'm sure we'll we'll talk about it. maybe it'll make sense
1: it. after 20 hours
0: <laughs> well we, we'll move on to barry See, so you mentioned barry Critically acclaimed, very popular show right now. Bill Hader, you know, at the helm. <coughs> uh, season two, we haven't we haven't really talked much about it. Season two, I, I think people were kind of wondering how is this show gonna continue its its momentum from season one, which uh, has been just lauded and was on top of everybody's favorite shows of, and they definitely I think actually upped their game this season, and I think that speaks to not only Hater, it felt like he kind of went up another level in terms of performance, but I think also just the show in general um, is very creative, and it speaks on themes that not a lot of other shows are necessarily talking about, uh, that it brings out the best of whoever it is, and I thought the season two finale was a great culmination of that, and I just want to see what happens in season three now with the way it ends. They, they they do cliffhangers really well in this show, almost to like a fault where I feel like really frustrated. I'm Like I just want to watch more now, which is great, but also like give me more Barry. Uh, what were your thoughts on season two?
1: Yeah, as you said, and I was part of this a lot of concern trolling about the need to keep the show going and the desire to keep it going. You mentioned this when we talked about the premiere, and again, it's kind of foolish to tell people that the best thing they ever made should stop right away like (laughs) obviously it's not the most realistic thing in the world especially when 500 scripted shows are made every year (laughs) but what most impressed me about barry in season two wasn't so much the the cliffhanger at the end although i did that find that very effective and i was really just impressed with the continued character growth basically across everywhere and barry As we learn about his uh, incident and resulting PTSD from Afghanistan, just adding more and more layers to everyone in the story. And along the way, Fuchs, who was really kind of an aloof, jolly character, you know, going full antagonist by the end of this and doing some truly sinister things in the back half of the season felt totally earned and and right and you understood why fuchs was going down that road but it was still tough to tough to swallow and i think that's ultimately the overall takeaway of with barry is that it's a show that has a lot of really dark humor and there's a lot of drama here and a lot of funny shit but a lot of times it's uh, it's tough and sally has i think a great arc i know some people found sally to be a bit of a irritating presence at times just in terms of coming across as more of a self-centered person in the beginning you know your typical uh wannabe la uh resident trying to find stardom all that it was not a unique in the beginning Mm -hmm. but they had a lot more layers of sally in terms of her past trauma and the, the the all the things she weighs in her decisions and i really liked her arc and sarah goldberg again continues to impress in that role um and then Noho hank a character that we yes very happy stood stuck around at the end of season one anthony kerrigan just really sells it and even hank has has a bit of a journey yeah as the chechens and bolivians and burmese all reject him over time and then most of them die at the end anyway but yeah i um and as we said before hero mirai shoots most of this and it looks amazing the yeah. saturation color saturation is really great all the time yeah. uh so it's just an awesome visual watch but having the beats having barry and his relationship with Gene, and mm-hmm. it's just really great to watch and even if sometimes it's awfully awfully dark yeah. and i think that that's quite the testament that you can make people this invested in something that's often not very happy
0: yeah it I mean, if you think about it, it's centered around Barry's PTSD, how Fuchs has taken advantage of his PTSD, um, how Sally has her own PTSD, but kind of from domestic violence. From domestic violence, but uses that in a way to like propel her self and her career forward. Um, Mm -hmm. Gene dealing with his trauma now from the loss of the love of his life, detective, yeah, I forget which is Just, what, just you know, grief. Yes, just grief in general. And Janice? Then, yeah, Janice. And then you kind of see them putting in commentary on L.A. lifestyle, on people chasing success, people using these things in their life to get success. And then also commentary in the second-to-last episode about how easy it is for you know men like Barry to get auditions and sally has to claw and scrape her way around it and i think that there's some really smart commentary throughout um it 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 works on so many different levels that it's just really fantastic you know noho hank i i'm always gonna remember him when when the bus started to burn the the barbecue bus and him just kind of like making all these confessions uh similar to uh oh man, I'm trying to think of the movie right now. Almost famous, you know, when, when they're on the plane right. and it almost goes down. Um just uh the the show has so many moments and I think the the episode most people talked about this season was I think it was episode four titled Lily. Uh about
1: Ronnie slash Lily. Yeah. Ronnie
0: slash Lily where uh Barry is sent out to kill someone for the detective who found out he was the one that murdered his partner and uh Barry doesn't want to do it. The guy ends up being a I think it's a jujitsu master <laughs> and his, yeah. he's trained his daughter World as well. champ or something. And it becomes a quite a, a journey for Barry and then fuchs What did you think? What were your thoughts on that episode? I mean, that was a real standout for
1: me. Oh, for sure. That was really cool cuz it was just a great bottle episode just yeah. as a it looked awesome. It had a really great arc. That was ultimately very self-contained. Mm-hmm. Uh but also drove Fuchs' future decision making, and kind of was the culmination of Barry's uh, rejecting of the under his underworld life. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, that like action is really cool and they take the absurdist angle of having lily be this like feral <laughs> uh demon of sorts that can fucking fly around yeah. and fuck barry up <laughs> when she first like jumps
0: the... at him and like she like yeah. flies i was like oh <laughs> Lily do you start laughing yeah I,
1: I was re vulture has a piece where they actually talk to the actress who plays lily and she's like yeah they just put me on this harness and they would like pull and it would just kind of shoot me in the air and they would just tell me to like go at it and really cool and, like, when she climbs the tree and perches on the roof, then she's on the car at the end. She bites oh, man. his face. Uh, oh, man. So it, it does, again, the episode was cool because, like, you get the character, continued character movement for Fuchs and Barry, mainly Barry, but then you also have the self-contained action and small story in the episode itself. So and, that was my favorite episode of the season.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, same for me. And I love how it ends with, like, Ronnie fighting barry in the grocery store and like uh, just everything about that that whole sequence was really great i don't know i it felt just like this season they really have a direction for the show and a story that they want to tell and i think that you know talking about thrones and we kind of they had the beats but with we talked about george R. R. martin not finishing the stories they kind of were filling in gaps that maybe they they were hoping not to have to fill in but barry feels like it's very it's set like they know what they want to say at least going into each season i don't know if it's like a full story arc that they have written out or not i don't know but i know that, that they've been picked up for a third season obviously um barry is a show you can't miss definitely gotta check it out any last thoughts on this season before we move
1: on uh no i think i have it top I think top two on the year right now what's what's with I it? i think i saw russian doll yeah at number one
0: russian doll is great
1: but uh, Barry too, I think right now. I find uh, head of True Detective and Veep and Thrones.
0: When I w- when I wake up in the morning, I find myself singing the Russian doll song. Got to get up, got to get out. Like just <laughs> think about it all the time. All right, I'm thinking he's back. Pretty good Keanu <laughs> impression, right? Not backing on it. John Wick. Yeah. <laughs> Are you pissed off, John? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like it. Uh, John Wick three. Convincing. Uh, Chad Stah- Stahelski back at the helm, 80% on man. Rotten Tomatoes. As I said earlier at the beginning of the show, Unseated Avengers Endgame, with 53 million at the box office. Um man,
1: more than that. I think it's like 57. Oh,
0: got up to 57. Our Clarissa of 53. Yeah. I mean, man, guns, lots of guns. Like <laughs> this uh is a, a brutal, gory, action-packed film. Uh and I loved it. John Wick has somehow become probably the, the that and like the Fast and Furious films are the best action movies uh, that are consistently made of that and Mission Impossible as well, obviously. Um, Thank you. I mean, th- those three are, are just undeniable uh, franchises at this point. How did you feel about John Wick 3? Were you at, Were you as pleased with it as I was?
1: I was pleased uh, with it. Uh, but here's the but I'm actually been com- <laughs> qualifier right. coming, uh, comparing it to the other John Wicks, it's actually my least favorite, hmm. which I think is uncommon take. So from tell me why. Um, so I think John Wick One works really well just because it's really self-contained, story discernible plot, makes sense throughout, and of course has the. Tr- Textbook, amazing choreography, badass Mm -hmm. fighting, gunplay, all that. And then two was like unexpected in how successfully it raised the stakes, continues to build on this world in John Wick, this assassin underbelly that's international, but we really see it through the lens of New York City. And they jet set around the world, this time in Italy, and more shadowy characters. We don't really learn much about this high table, but... The groundwork is laid, and the again, probably most importantly, the fight choreography, and then the overall action is leveled up. for For chapter three, for Parabellum, I it was the first time watching any of these movies where I was just kind of like annoyed with the world because it just started to feel really obtuse to me. Specifically, the whole jaunt in the Sahara mm. meeting with the Elder, which ultimately just felt like this weird dead end of sorts. And right before that, we go go see Bronn and Halle Berry. And we have this really cool fight with the dogs over at the fucking mint for the gold coins. Mm-hmm. But none of it really, like, felt that consequential. Like, I, this is the first time the plot just started to lose me, which was weird. I didn't expect this because this plot is set up. You know, we get, uh, we're in media res here. Like, John is on the run. He, he McShane gave him an hour head start and then he's going to get fucked up, and I really liked it. It was, it was simple. Excommunicado. And it just got... Exactly. And it got just a little more all over the place than I expected, and ultimately I think it ends in a good place with the fight with Mark Dacascos, yeah. but... I, I don't know. I just The story was just a little more muddled than I expected and wanted as a result. Yeah, it
0: was a lot of traveling. A lot of moving around, getting back and forth from one place to another. Um i thought the scenes were cool i i actually had a similar feeling like i'm not really sure why we had to go um necessarily see Halle berry like i i felt like it didn't Casablanca. Yeah, i didn't feel like it all totally made sense but then i was like why why do i care this much about the plot of john wick three because what I, what i go to john wick to see is like really cool action sequences um enough intrigue about a world that's pretty cool to me and i find very intriguing to learn more about um and i also just feel like this is probably the one time i like see gore to this level and i'm like okay with it you know because I, I think <laughs> that especially with uh, all the violence that there is just in society it, it can feel a little bit like do do we need like this level of like something being grotesque and This, uh, I don't, I don't feel like it, I feel like it's so surreal that I can't ever like say like, oh, someone's going to like take an idea from this.
1: How'd you feel about the, uh, eyeball puncture in like minute six or whatever it was? uh, I
0: covered my eyes for that. (laughs) I didn't watch that. I'll put it that way. I'm, I'm a bit of a baby when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, so there were a lot of really cool fight sequences. It starts off with a fight with Boban. How did you feel about that fight? Yeah.
1: Uh... Again, it was a cool fight. He's fighting with a with, fucking book. With a fucking you know? and pencil. Boban is like 7'3 or whatever. I think he might be bigger than that. He's the heaviest guy in the NBA, tallest guy in the NBA. Um, and that was really cool because Boban, I thought actually acquitted himself pretty well for a yeah. non-actor. And it, it didn't feel as gimmicky as the initial tease in the trailer made you assume. It's like, oh, Boban's mm-hmm. in this. You know? He'll get killed by John Wick. And it's like, okay, yeah. fine. But it was actually a cool fight. And, like, yes, Wick having shit stashed in a random folk fairy tale book in the New York Public Library is ridiculous. doesn't seem any more ridiculous than other things we accept Mm -hmm. in this story. So that's That's fine. fine. Um, Yeah, I thought that was cool. And really having that scene and then the other first fight scene where after his chase and he goes to that – antique yeah. weapon place and they spend like about 50 seconds him retooling this revolver of sorts and picking the parts out just to shoot one dude and then be <laughs> done with it uh really cool but then the brutality and the humor associated with him throwing all those knives and the hatchet and shuriken and all that that, that was fucking awesome wild the, the choreography and that's what I, I was expecting the movie to keep going and I, again once the story got a little all over the place it kind of took me mm-hmm. took me out of it because i thought it starts really fun
0: no i agree i thought the choreography in that antique shop or antique weaponry was amazing um yeah museum the was. actually wasn't that impressed with and this was uh asia kate dylan uh
1: the adjudicator yeah, The
0: adjudicator it, I get her role and it makes sense, but just something about her just felt like it didn't totally work. And I don't know if it was her performance. Um, I don't know if it was the fact that the adjudicator is, you know, it's part of that mystery that we don't quite totally understand how the high table and the the person above yeah. that works. You know, there's, there's a lot of like unknowns to that and I think that that kind of made me feel like, okay, so why are, why were they so afraid of this person? Um, or why this person matters so much? There were a lot of uh cameos in this. Jason Manzucas just uh
1: TikTok yeah, man, yeah, but
0: didn't really have that much to do other than kind of walk around, walk behind uh, Fishburne, and then pick John Wake up at the end, right? Uh, Fishburne was his normal hammy self in this, which I thought was pretty awesome.
1: Yep, the Bowery King. Yes. <laughs>
0: um, the Underground is where stuff happens. Ian McShane. Uh, also, was his normal, awesome self in this. I, yep. I, I love just hearing him talk.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, McShane's like post Deadwood career as just like older character actor has been really cool, and not that to say that he is only in good stuff like he's in American Gods, for example. But Winston is just a really fun aspect of the John Wick story. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy that they kept him going in the story, because there's a few times you think he might, you know, go away. But the whole the whole like lore of the Continental Hotel and French actually an international assassin hotel is just really, really cool. And Winston actually, I feel like this is best the best movie for Winston, because he has probably has the most lines, but he also has the most to do. But like in the be- in the beginning of Act Three when they have that fight. Uh, at the Continental, when the guys with the body armor show up, and he's just, like, chilling in the safe yeah. room, like, drinking and, like, smile, waving as they leave and come back and really funny. And then him uh, setting off the next movie by um, yapping Wick off this off the roof. Yep. You know? Are they setting Winston up to be a true, true villain and thus get a lot more screen time for John Wick 4? Or is that more of, like, a he did what he had to do. John will understand type thing. It's kind of where I lean, but I mean, what do you think? Cause I mean, obviously we like Ian McShane, but wh- where do you think they're taking Winston as a character?
0: Um, I think if Winston really wanted Wick dead, he would have shot him in the head because he knows that that suit is bulletproof. Um, right. I-, I think he was either doing this, knowing that Wick would probably have to die. And this is a way that he could at least give him some time to get away. Um, or maybe he is a real heel turn, which would be awesome, because he, he makes you, I think, would be a great villain <laughs> um, in these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, uh, I think they set up Wick 4 really well, especially putting Fishburne and, and uh, Reeves back together. You know, for 4, I think, will be awesome. Uh, just a couple of other people I wanted to shout out here. Uh, Lance Reddick, um, who plays... Yes, the concierge. Yeah, the concierge. I think his name is Sharon uh him him and wick in that battle in the continental was just incredible when they come back they're like need more firepower the shotguns uh, it makes just (laughs) like there you go and like he's like going through like which ones (laughs) to grab just so awesome um and you already mentioned uh dacascas who i thought him and the two twins uh were awesome they had this real sense of like kung fu to the movie in terms of like the way that they fought which i thought was really awesome and the fight with the twins was great because they didn't kill wick even though they could have at different times they really just wanted to have like a good battle with him
1: right i actually think uh, they they kind of manifest a lot of this but the whole like presence of wick as like this celebrity in this underground world and how like those guys are like wick it's a pleasure yeah. to try and fuck you up right <laughs> yeah. now and they let him get back on his feet before they attack him. Like, that was really cool. And I just kind of wish we got a little bit more of that. Like, we spent a lot of time just in, like, the weird yeah. nuances of this intergalactic under, uh, underbelly. Yet, if we focus a little bit more on just Wick's, like, moment to moment as this underworld celeb, I don't know. It would have been cool. But, I mean, that guy, I mean, ya- Yanyan Ruhyan. Ya- yeah from The Raid. Uh, I mean, he briefly has a scene in The Force Awakens as well, but uh, people really compare the the action, the choreography mm-hmm. to, uh, from John Wick to The Raid. And I think a lot of people are really claiming for uh, the guy who plays Rama in The Raid to be in John Wick 4 in the future. Cause like, Mark Dacascos is another guy who is not really as famous as you think he should be. Cause he's just really charismatic international actor and he has a great turn in this movie. It's kind of a shame he dies but yeah i mean john wick 4 we obviously know what's happening this is the most this is the biggest opening weekend of any john wick movie in fact it's opening weekend outgrossed the entire first movie's domestic run and this movie actually despite all the jet setting only costs like 50 something million dollars I already made a profit and it's about already tripled that with got worldwide grossing so it'll make a big profit in the coming weeks uh and as you said, be a Fast and Furious and Mission Impossible, the two top top scale action franchises, and then I think John Wick is there because the franchise has never been more popular, and it's truly Keanu's second act or third act, I guess. Yeah. So, it's the, even even if this wasn't my favorite of the movies, it's still really awesome that we have, you know, action movies like this continuing to get made. And honestly, shout out Lionsgate; they're the smallest and least successful of the major studios and john wick is is, is was, was them you know they um everyone else passed so it's a good win for them they needed it to wrap up wick talk just give me your top three
0: uh action sequences in this film
1: number one is the knife fight oh. in the beginning with in the museum thing number two is the fights in the mirror glass room yeah, at the yeah. end with the Kaskus where where brutally like they throw each other into glass case after glass case and it's they don't cut away you're watching the dude fucking slam through the glass and the stunt double fucking ate mm-hmm. that shit like it's so hard <laughs> and then the third i think is the the motorcycle okay. scene kind of gave me some like dark knight yeah. vibes and i and I guess the, it didn't look as good as some of the other stuff because the camera's kind of up close and stuff but just watching uh, John, even before that on the horse, just like his, uh, ability to freestyle and like audible on the fly while he's surviving and fucking murdering people. It's, uh, just entertaining yeah, stuff. I, I agree. <laughs>
0: no, number one for me is the antique, uh, gun knife shop. What, what that you said was your number one. I love when like, yep. they don't have anything to like kill each other with. So they each like take a second, and, like look around inside the cases next to them and break the glass. Yeah. Like that was such a great, great, yeah, great moment. Um, Number two is the uh, escape from High Garden, or you know when they uh, when Brown shoots <laughs> Haley Berry's dog and uh, they go all out. Yeah. I gotta be honest, like when seeing those dogs like mess people up, or like when Haley Berry's like ah, and like the dog runs and jumps off her back and gets the guy that's like like two stories up. I was like, holy crap, like mm-hmm. this is incredible.
1: It's like the dogs in Call yeah. of Duty: World at War that you had no hope of surviving whenever someone <laughs> no called <hope>. them in <laughs>
0: um and then also at, at the end of that when she's like he shot my dog and john was like i get it like it <laughs> just like one of those great moments that uh calls back to obviously one the earlier one uh the first wick and then the twin fight uh we talked about i just thought that was just a really awesome uh, really well choreographed scene um and again the humor in it like there's a point where like wick gets knocked down they don't kill him for the second time and he like puts a hand up like all right give mm-hmm. me a second like <laughs> they're like hey slowed down he's like well we'll see uh just really really good
1: it's wild shit and you know it ultimately i think what's cool about wick is that it's unabashedly radar it's unabashedly adult yeah action drama really just action but that's not common th- anymore because usually doesn't make any money so as i said like lionsgate got got the hit here and It's not going away, that's for sure. So we're going to wrap up there for this week.
0: What should people be checking out to stay up with us next week, Dave?
1: Yeah, so next week we'll be talking about Aladdin from Disney, the live-action remake. We briefly touched on the trailer a few months ago. We'll also touch on Fleabag Season 2, the second and final season from Phoebe Waller-Bridge. We never talked about Season 1, so I'm looking forward to that. I'll talk about Catch-22 the George Clooney Hulu six-part show, uh, adaptation of the famous book. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows, we haven't talked about this season one at all. It has been renewed. So looking forward to talking about that based off the Taika Waititi film. And I think we'll talk about, um, a lot of music coming up, but we'll have to save some of that for later. But I think we'll talk about that Beast Coast album. Yeah. Joey, Badass, Flatbush Zombies, Underachievers. A lot of people we talk about whenever they drop music. Now that they're all dropping music, as one entity it's uh, pretty exciting so plenty to talk about next week
0: somebody please get this man a gun all right see you next week